Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke chapter 22? And I want to begin a message today that I call the comfort of sovereignty in the midst of tragedy. I know that we are getting into the Christmas season. And the part of Luke that we're getting into is more like Good Friday and Easter, I guess. But the reason for the birth was the death. The virgin-born Christ, the federal head of the elect of God, was uniquely qualified. The Holy Spirit of God came upon Mary the Virgin. She was with child divinely. And only the sinless Christ of God can take our place, be our substitute, and be the appropriate atonement for our sin. So we can look back to the cradle. And as we've gone through Luke these since night since 2016 we see his sinless life, his display of deity. And now, his vicarious death, the passion of the Christ, the suffering. We're going to start with the first six verses of Luke 22, but then I'm going to lay a, a foundation for the several messages that we'll go through, God willing, regarding the passion crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So let's look to the first six verses, okay? Now the feast of unleavened bread was drawing near, called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. If you've been with us, especially in the last few weeks, you will know that Christ came, of course, in the triumphal entry, it's called, on Palm Sunday, and there were throngs of people. They were generally looking for him to be their version of the Messiah which is a version, but not the version for this time. Then for the last several weeks, we've been noting his teaching in the temple. What he has done, finally, is 
God in the flesh has displaced the man-made Judaism. Judaism is a combination of Old Testament law and man-made traditions. The Old Testament law is fine as long as it's taken in its proper perspective, which is just simply to reveal to us how sinful we are and how desperately we need salvation from God, grace. But when it's taken as the method of salvation, human behavior, works, self-righteousness, then these, these man-written, man-made laws are placed on top of God's law. Of course, it becomes an abomination. This is the thing, finally, that Christ reveals. And so he's made enemies because we have seen in the scriptures how, how the, the priesthood made a lot of money through the temple rituals. The Pharisees had made themselves wealthy. The Sadducees had made themselves wealthy because they had been able to subjugate the people in what was really a man-made religion. And so they were the elitists and everybody else had to pay into the treasury. Christ has exposed this. And he's made mortal enemies. But you look at this and you'll think, you know, these guys are, are conspiring against Christ. And then you're going to have Judas to come along. Then you're going to have Pontius Pilate. You're going to have all these Roman soldiers. But let me say the foundation of the whole thing is that this is all in the sovereign purpose of God. God the Father, according to His eternal covenant with the Son, is delivering the Christ of God, His only begotten Son, to the cross. We're going to see that, I hope, as we lay this foundation today. So it's not the religionists, it's, it's not the, Juda the Judaistic uh, leaders, the, the leaders of Judaism that are really in charge here. It's not Pontius Pilate who's in charge. It's not the Caesar of Rome who is in charge. God is in charge. Everything is moving according to the divine plan and purpose of God so that at the end of all things, He receives all the glory. So many things happen. You know, oh, I'll hear it all the time. Can't believe in a loving God because of so much suffering. So many things are wrong. Of course, now, who knows what is wrong, right? From the scriptures, I do. Absolute truth. Everybody else flips it upside down. That said... We have this calm assurance as believers that God is absolutely sovereign. And regardless of how bad it may seem, somehow, in His own way, God is going to be glorified. We just trust Him. 
even when it seems bad, looks bad, is bad, we trust Him. They're not in charge. They're not the ones driving Him to His death. There's a story and there's a there's an account in the Gospel of John. He's there that night praying, and they come to arrest him. Not just temple guards, which would have probably been in the scores, maybe hundreds, but Roman soldiers, battle-hardened Roman soldiers stationed in the Middle East, and it was just as bad of a gig then as it is now. Mean, tough guys. And the Greek text tells us that Achilliarch was in charge. Achilliarch, he commands anywhere from 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers. Leading us to understand that there were at least 600 Roman soldiers, and, 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 and then including in that, included in that would have been the dozens at least of temple guards. So just all kind of, because of the weak, and because of the emotions that Christ had stirred among the people with regard to the Messiah, they didn't know what to expect, but they came, you know, cowardly in the middle of the night. Jesus said, whom seek ye? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Christ said, I am he. And the Gospel of John says, when he said that, all the soldiers, I mean, we're talking hundreds of Roman soldiers and dozens and scores of temple guards. When Jesus said, I am he, they all fell down. He knocked them down with a divine thought. In other words, they didn't take him to the cross. He went to the cross according to the divine purpose of God and the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. So we're going to look at this to lay our foundation for the next several messages regarding the passion, crucifixion, death of Christ, burial, resurrection. And to do that, part one of this message takes us back to probably the key Old Testament passage that, in my view, puts both first and second comings of Christ together. Now the Jews had it wrong. They were partially right in the sense that when Christ comes again, He comes in glory and great power and He displaces Gentile authority and establishes a kingdom. But they had conveniently overlooked the first coming of the Christ. Oh, we can't, we can't get along with a, a suffering Messiah. That's just not part of it for us. But it was part of God's word, part of God's plan. He first comes. You see, self-righteous people don't need a Savior to die for them, they think. So that was inconvenient to their religion. That the suffering Christ had to come and die for the sins of others. Therefore, they just had convinced the people of their particular theological persuasion, which was the Messiah would come in glory and not in humiliation and shame. I've been telling you all the way through Luke 
how the teaching of Christ, we can know what the teaching of Christ was when he taught the multitudes wherever he was. Namely, the truth of salvation, all of grace, not of human works, the necessity for a salvation, and that the Christ would come twice. He would come first as a suffering servant and then in glory and power. Now they should have known that. But they were blinded to it. Let's go back then to the Old Testament, okay? Isaiah 53. Who has believed our tidings? Now this is a, if you want to put it in its greater context in Isaiah... This is a prophecy with regard to the nation of Israel. I believe, and I believe that the Bible teaches, that finally at the end, the nation of Israel will be saved. I believe Paul teaches that especially in Romans 11. Here... The nation of Israel is about mm, somewhere between 80 and 100 years from Babylonian captivity, but they were already falling into deep sin. They were following the path of the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. They had a wicked king on the throne now. Uzziah had died. Manasseh was the king. And a lot, a lot rises and falls on leadership, you know. So the evil king was not given over to spiritual matters. Who has believed our tidings and to whom was the arm of Yahweh revealed? The arm. If you want, it's hard, you know, he's beyond time and space, but if you want to try to visualize the Almighty, and there are illustrations given through the text. Think of God as rolling up his sleeve and having the most majestic biceps and forearms that you'd ever seen. The arm, and it's, it's, it's this way throughout the Old Testament. The arm of Yahweh was the arm that it reached down into something and picked people up or it delivered them or it slapped the enemy back. To whom was the arm of Yahweh revealed? Now this tells us, it prophesies to us of the very thing that we're looking at in Luke 22, 1 through 6. And even beyond that. The Jews who had rejected the Son of God and would put him to death. For he will grow up like a sapling before it, like a root from dry ground. To the, the imagery is here that you're growing a field of crops and some strange thing starts growing up and you're not going to attend to it. 
It's not what you put there, so you don't want it to live. It's, it, you don't, it, you're just going to let it dry out. This was their attitude toward Jesus of Nazareth. He has neither form nor splendor, and when we see him, there is, neither, there is, no, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was not a splendid, majestic king with a king's robe and a crown riding the white horse. He will be. But at this part of Isaiah 53, he's not. Because he first comes in humiliation to serve his people as only he could do. They could not be saved in, the, in any other way. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, accustomed to grief. And as it were, we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we held him, we did not esteem him highly. We held him of no account. We thought he was less than nothing. So this was, their, this was their mindset toward Jesus of Nazareth. Now this is a messianic. Now later, may I say, for the rabbis, up until the time of Jesus, this was a messianic part of Isaiah's prophecy. But after Jesus, they changed their commentaries and they said, this is actually a reference to Isaiah the prophet himself. Well, we know that's not the case because Isaiah 53 is alluded to by the gospel writers, by Paul and by Peter. Much of the New Testament alludes to Isaiah 53. Despised, rejected, man of sorrows. We hid our faces. We despised him. He was nothing to us. Truly. He bore our griefs. Now they're looking back. Truly he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we accounted him stricken. It's a very uh, harsh word there for stricken in the Hebrew text. Smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our completeness was upon him. And with his wound, we're healed. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned each one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He came in our behalf. He was smitten by God for us. It was our transgressions that pierced him, not the trumped up charges that we brought against him and the hired false witnesses that came and said things against him. God did these things. The Father sent the Son while we did what was in our nature. It's in the nature of a sheep. We were coming home from 
Gulf Shores. And I noticed somewhere we were on 65 coming home, and I guess it was geese or ducks or something. But they were in a straight, they were in a point like this. They were just, uh, they knew what they were doing. They'd gathered themselves together. Some, some dude goose was leading them. Everybody else knew that. Sheep don't recognize that kind of leadership among other sheep. They have to have, have, to have a shepherd. Otherwise, they go astray. That's, that's nature. We've turned each one to his own way. Yahweh has laid on him our iniquity. In some wonderful day, and the only promise of national salvation in all the Bible is for Israel. No other nation of people, ethnos, no other separation, ethnic separation of people is promised salvation as a whole. Only Israel. So someday, and Zechariah talks about how they looked upon the one whom they pierced and, and their hearts are broken and the weeping and the wailing is uncontrollable by all of the people of Israel. At the end of days, Yahweh laid on him our iniquity. Now they had this, they had this text, these people of the first six verses of Luke. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he would open not his mouth. He would not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, like a ewe, a ewe lamb, that is mute before her shearers, so he would not open his mouth. If you're innocent, and they're about to kill you, what are you going to do? I mean, this, this is no, I didn't do this. He was appointed to die, and he knew it. He maintained silence. Except, to, to, to paraphrase what he says to, to Pilate, I think it's in the Gospel of John. Pilate says, say something in your behalf so I can make a case for you, man. I know you're not guilty of all this mess. To which Christ responded, I came into the world for this. So let's get this over with. Let's get it on. So the last thing Pilate knows to do is to offer him a choice between Jesus of Nazareth and Barabbas. You know the story. From prison and from judgment he is taken. And his generation, who will declare? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. His grave was ascribed with the wicked. They intended to dump him in one of those old open holes where they just carried all of their crucified people and threw them off. But it didn't happen. He was buried in a rich man's grave. But with the rich at his death. Why? Because heaven knew he was not guilty of any sin or crime. 
because he committed no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it pleased Yahweh to crush him. It was by the pleasure of Yahweh that he goes to crucifixion. It was not the pleasure of the Jews. It was not the pleasure of Rome. It was the pleasure of the Father in heaven. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he'll see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and Yahweh's pleasure will prosper in his hand. You know what that says? Here's what that says. He's going to die, but he's going to live again. And he's going to take note of all of those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. He, you see what that says? He will see his offspring. He already knows. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, it's in Romans 11, it's in the context of Israel being saved finally. And he says certain things, well, until the fulfillment of the Gentiles. The salvation, the generations, part of it, the generation, his offspring. To prolong is a Hebrew word that means endurement. In other words, he has no end of days. That's what it means. It is the pleasure of Yahweh. Now think about this. Christ of God looks and sees all the saved and the Bible says that salvation is the pleasure of Yahweh. It pleases Yahweh to save, it pleases the Father to save and deliver his elect to his Son according to their covenant in a realm that cannot be understood. It's beyond time and space. He will see the labor of his soul. He would be satisfied. By his knowledge, in other words, by knowledge of him, my knowledge of him. By his knowledge, Yahweh says, my righteous servant, my righteousness servant, it's probably better translated, I could have better translated it righteous and capitalized the R. My righteous servant. Now that ascribes deity to this Messiah. Will justify many. For he will bear their iniquities. Now here's the second coming, verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. Uh, the word there is 
Garibum. It means the many, the, the, the throng, the many, the multitude, the great. I will allot him a portion with the great, the many, the great many. And with the strong, he will divide the spoil. Because he poured out his soul to death. He was counted with transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Interceded or mediated. To mediate, to intercede. Now, you and I in Christ are there. You see, why doesn't the victorious Christ take it all? Because we are joint heirs with Christ. He shares with his elect who he is, what he is, what he has. And we're called here the strong. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If that wasn't the truth, I would have told you that it wasn't the truth. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. Come again, receive it myself, so that where I am there you may also be. To live... In that place with Christ. Because he poured out his soul to death. He was counted with transgressors and he bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. I got to move on from this. Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace. We're talking about the eternal covenant here. Making the point that it was the plan and purpose of God that was being carried through here. And this part in Luke 22 is being initiated by the power of God and not the power of the world. Now may the God of peace, having brought the great shepherd of the sheep out from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus eternal covenant he has to shed his blood to cut and guarantee the covenant that he made with his father 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 the one having saved us having called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace having been given us eternally in Christ Jesus before time. Look at that. Purpose and grace eternally given to us in Christ Jesus before time. John 17, his prayer of intercession, what I call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus spoke these things, having lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. How many times do you read in the Gospels where Christ says, the hour 
has not yet come. He's headed for this hour, the purpose, the plan of God. The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given Him, He should give them eternal life, that they should come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having completed the work that you have given me that I should do. And now you glorify me with yourself, Father, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ knows that he's about to fulfill the terms of the eternal covenant made with his father all that you've given me I will give them eternal life finally Revelation 13 in verse 8 and all dwelling on the earth will worship it that's the bad guy you know whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb having been slain from the conception of the world. Katabaleth, Cosmo. Katabaleth, the conception, the idea, the conception. Listen to this. Part of the cosmos. It's not chaos, it's not the earth, it's the world, it's everything. The design of it, the thought from God, included in the thought, the conception of the cosmos, is the eternal covenant, the deliverance of the elect by the death of the Christ on the cross according to the purpose and plan of God. This is not man-made, man-designed. Jesus didn't stumble into a mess and God made the best of it. No, no, no. The book of life, written in the book of life, of the Lamb, having been slain from the conception of the world. This is why we worship our Christ. There used to be an old song, so true. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. Perhaps God has brought you to this service today that you might publicly confess Christ, professing His salvation. In just a moment, we'll stand up in the act of standing. You are invited to come and share that with me. And let me pray with you. If he would come into the Lord's salvation, 
Maybe you're here and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. You come as well. We'll take care of all the details of church membership if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.